For my first number, what I'd like to do... No. In Ephesians 1.3, the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul is clearly excited about the things that God has done. The very first thing he mentions after that exuberant outburst is this. For he chose us in him to be holy and blameless in his sight. In other words, for Paul, the most exciting thing that God has done is to give us the opportunity to become holy. But if I were to ask you whether holiness for you was a blessing or a bust, I have a suspicion I know which way the vote would go. So something's gone wrong. Somehow this wonderful gift of holiness has been misunderstood by not just us, but generations preceding us, so that it's not good news anymore to talk about being holy. That's why we as the Division of Religion and Philosophy are excited to have the opportunity every year to bring a speaker on campus to host the Cox Holiness Lectures. They are sponsored not by the division, but by a very generous benefactor whose name is Leo Cox. Dr. Cox was, for a number of years, the chairman of this division. He was a college president. He has been an author, and uh, is probably the most, one of the most godly men I know. Due to ailing health, he's not able to be with us. But if you could meet him and talk to him, you would agree that here, here's a man who's discovered the, the blessing of holiness. And in an attempt to make that message more widely known, he annually sponsors these gatherings. And so what we've done this year is we've invited one of our own, the Reverend Steve Deneff. He's the past pastor of uh, Lakeport Wesleyan Church in Michigan. Been there 12 years. Uh, he took his undergraduate and graduate degrees from Indiana Wesleyan and has become known, is becoming known across the church as a, a lucid spokesman on the topic of holiness. So we're excited to have him here, to have him get a chance to address you today. And then tomorrow in College Church Sanctuary at 11 o'clock, there is a, another opportunity for him to share. That will be particularly for those in the division who will be expected to be there. But it's open to anybody, and there's plenty of room. And if you have that time free, we'd love to have you come. But Really, our goal in these two days, in these two hours, is to give us an opportunity to think again about the question, how can holiness be for me a source of blessing? So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on Steve as he comes to share with us. We pray, Father, that you will make this time and tomorrow to be times rich in thought-provoking comment and discussion, but not just so that we will know more about holiness, and not just so that we can become more holy, but so that we can experience the wonderful blessing that you intended holiness to be. So give him the words to say, may this be a time where each of us can draw closer to you clearer in our minds and more appreciative of what you've made available to us, the blessings you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Help me welcome Steve Deneff.
good morning. This is my first chance to be in a building like this. This is a nice place. We were meeting in College Church about 18, 20 years ago, and I was in school here. It's very difficult, very hard for me to come and speak back at Indiana Wesleyan. I can go other places and speak, and it's not really a problem. But to come back to Indiana Wesleyan is a problem because I did my undergrad work here. And we were hard on this school when I was here. And so when I'm on the phone with my friends in the last week, and they say, uh, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to go back to Indiana. They said, for what? Well, it's the Conference on Holiness. They said, you, you're going to Indiana for a Conference on Holiness? And when they start laughing, you know that maybe it's going to be a pretty difficult time. I was reading in the newspaper, a fellow by the name of Michael Christian is a professor, or was at least, at Boston College. And uh, he went out one time and... Uh, kissed a gal and had his eyes open while he kissed her. She caught him, told him he was peeking. So he decided to study the subject of kissing. In fact, he learned everything there was to know about kissing. He learned how many kiss and peek. He learned how many French kiss, Eskimo kiss, and don't kiss. He learned what a kiss means and what it should mean. In fact, he wrote two books on the subject of kissing. True. One of them was called The Art of Kissing not married. He said the hardest part of writing the book on kissing was now when he goes out on a date and kisses his date at the end, she looks at him and says, you wrote a book on kissing and that's the best you can do? (laughs) It's kind of what happens when I go out back to Indiana. They say, you wrote a book on holiness and that's the best you can do? I thought, well, man, Keith Drury wrote one on holiness. Keith is not exactly Mother Teresa, you know. So what I want to do is I want to talk to you this morning, if I can, I want to try to put a whole bunch of doctrine into just one simple message. And the best way to do that is to chop it up into chairs. Somebody told me that you had a guy here not long ago with chairs, and it better not be the same message, or he took it from me. But what we're trying to do is to talk to you about four kinds of people, and you notice there's a very noticeable gap in between the four chairs. It all looks like this. In his preface to Galatians, Luther said, one sentence like this. He said, to keep the law of God is to keep the law of God even when there is no law to keep. He says it differently in his preface to the Romans. He says something like this. He says, you are doing all of the righteous acts because either you fear punishment or you hope for a reward. And so you do the righteous acts. But he said, if you were ever left to yourself and the punishment and the reward was taken away, you might no longer do the things that you do now. And what he's saying in the long tense is what he just said in the shorter one in Galatians. When he says to keep the law of God means we keep the law of God even when there is no law to keep. And I think when that happens, in a nutshell, then holiness has happened in your life or in mine. So the best way to is very appropriately to go through the book of Romans almost from over the top and to talk about four different kinds of people that exist not in the book of Romans but in all the world. In fact, all people in this room and out of it will find themselves at least most of the time in one of the four predicaments I'm going to describe. The first predicament is all the way down here in chair number one. It starts with four. Four, three, two, one. In chair number four, we are talking about a person who does not have the good life 
and he does not want the good life. Now, when Jesus talked about the good life, he talked about having springs of living water that was bubbling up inside of you. He talked about eternal life. And eternal life means a lot more than living forever. Because even if you're bad, you're going to live forever, for better or worse. And so there is something about eternal life that doesn't have anything to do with how long you live. It has more to do with the kind of life that you're enjoying. And when Jesus talked about having everlasting life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He doesn't mean you're just it, you're going to live forever. He means that there will be a quality of life inside of you that is like springs of living water that literally jump forth is kind of how that reads. And so the person who sits in chair number four is a person who does not have that kind of a life and he does not want that kind of a life. This guy is the Eric Harris or Dylan Klebold of the world. The two who go through Columbine just about a year and a half ago, and now we're learning from a videotape that was allegedly taken while the shooting happened, that they are actually hunting Christians. Of 12 or 13 people that were killed in that day, eight of them had some connection to a church, four Catholic, four Protestant. This wasn't about jocks and cheerleaders, and it wasn't about rich kids wearing clothes that those two boys couldn't wear. This probably had more to do with religion than we first thought possible. And so what's happening on that frightful day in Columbine as two kids are running through and they're asking now, we hear their voices on the tape, asking people whether they're Christians. More than just Casey Bernal. They're asking other people whether they're Christians and then shouting four-letter anti-Christian expletives while they shoot them. This is chair four. This is the Unabomber who says the only thing I regret is that I didn't kill more people. But not only really, really bad people live in chair four. Remember, this guy does not have the good life that Jesus describes, and he does not want it either. There are other nice people who live in chair four. Coaches, teachers, neighbors, they take out your trash. They watch your dog while you're on vacation. They help mow your lawn. They do nice things for you, but when everything is said and done, they do not want your good life, and they don't have it either. I got on the plane a couple of years ago, was flying into Atlanta, and as I was getting on the plane, I found the seat I could find and took my book like I normally do and go off into the corner somewhere where I can read it and be left alone. My, too much of my job is public, and I'm a bit of an introvert, believe it or not, and so I try to find quiet places often. Sure enough, on this day, the fellow who's sitting next to me, we weren't even off the runway yet, and he says, so what do you do? I'm a preacher. Oh, really? Uh, in what church? The Wesleyan Church. Where are you going? I said, well, I'm going south to do a couple of lectures. On What? Uh, I'm going to go talk to a bunch of college kids on what it means to be a Christian. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, every evangelist today is licking his chops. He can hardly find the four spiritual laws fast enough and rack one up. I said, well, the Wesleyan Church follows the teachings of a fellow named John Wesley. Well, who was he? I think I've heard of him. He said, I'm Catholic. I think I've heard of him somewhere down the line. I said, well, Wesley taught that, that 
that we can know that we are Christians. Really? How do we know that? I said, well, he was saying something like this. The Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. He says, you want to put that in layman's terms? I'll try. I said, you see, on the outside, you have a body that does a lot of things other people look down on. You may not like some of the things you do either. The things you say, the things you do, the decisions you make. But there is inside of you, deep inside, a tiny switch. And when that switch is pointed in one of two directions, it can only go one of two ways. Either that switch, that tiny inside person, is, he is either oriented towards God... That is, he chooses his dates, he chooses his wife or husband, he chooses his career, he spends his money, he makes his decisions according to what God wants him to do. Or there's another way, I said. There is a little switch that can be flipped over and it can be aimed towards itself. That is, a person grows up and they make the decisions that they think is best. They get the job that they want to do. They make the money, they feather their nest, they buy their toys, they get the right husband or wife, they raise their kids, they live to 75 and die of a heart attack. But most of the stuff that they're doing is always about what they want out of life. He says, wait a second, you don't need to go any further. I know which guy I am. Which guy? He said, I'm the second guy. I'm a wine salesman. That was my first clue. He wasn't a Wesleyan member. I'm a wine salesman. And he said, I live in California. My girlfriend, who I live with, is in the front of the plane. She's Mormon. I'm Catholic. Wouldn't you like to be there on Thanksgiving Day? <laughs> Our parents are happily married and we're happy for them. But really, that's not the kind of life we desire. We have our life. He is firmly planted in chair number four. Now, he's not a bad guy. He's told me everything that most of your friends tell you. He's told me he likes the moral life. He thinks we should all live and vote the right way. He thinks he's happy if you're married, but he doesn't need to be. He told me that everyone is sort of moving towards God eventually, but there really is nothing in my religion that he wants. And so he's not an evil person. But on the inside, he has no desire for the life that I have. And he doesn't have it either. Then there is this guy in chair three. Here is a guy who does have the good life, but he does not want it. This guy does not have the good life, and he does not want it. But this guy does have the good life, but he still doesn't want it. This is the guy who didn't grow up in the world. He grew up in the church. He learned how to live a life that got padded and rewarded from a child up. But when it all comes down, he does not truly desire to have the right life. He just knows that from a child up, if he did anything wrong, he'd break his mama's heart and his daddy'd kill him. And when he gets to be 18 or 20 years old, what he does subconsciously is he takes all of these expectations that his parents have put upon him and he sort of rolls them over onto God. And so God becomes this kind of cosmic parent who has expectations because if you don't keep these expectations, he's bigger than you, you know. He can really ruin your life. 
And so the guy says, I'm going to do the things I'm supposed to do because the alternative is worse. I'm a preacher's kid. Like some of you, I grew up in a Christian home. We had our devotions. We memorized scripture. I learned huge portions of scripture before I was in the sixth grade. If there was an award to be had for attendance and for memorization and for finding the books of the Bible, I had them. I remember as a conservative Wesleyan child growing up in a home where you could not watch television on Sunday, you could not wear shorts outside the home. I remember frantically getting up one morning and looking through my closet. I'd lost my belt. It was Sunday morning. My parents were already over at the church. I was sure of few things in life, but one of them was this, that God is a holy, terrifying God, and there's certain things he won't stand for. One of them is kids without belts in church on Sunday. I do, true. I remember going through my closet, crying, looking for a belt, because... One or the other was going to happen. My parents were going to nail me or God was going to nail me. And I didn't like either one of those kinds of things. I remember in the third grade coming down the hall while the whole class was going off to the gymnasium. We left our third grade, Mrs. Oxender's class, and we were going down to the gymnasium in order to learn how to square dance. On the way to the gymnasium, which was on the right. The principal's office was on the left. When we passed the principal's office, I said to the teacher, Mrs. Oxender, I need to go into the office and I need to make a phone call. What do you need to do? I need to talk to my father about this. Why? Well, we're going to dance. She said, well, then maybe you better go talk to your father. I thought, well, now here's someone who does not have the good life and does not want it. And so I went into the principal's office and I picked up the telephone. And I called my father in the office, and I said, Dad, I've got a problem here. He said, what's wrong? I said, man, they're going to go into the room, and they're going to square dance. And you need to tell me what I'm supposed to do, because you know dancing ain't right, Dad. He said, son, you're in third grade. (laughs) I thought, you wimp. Tell me what to do. He said, you're big enough to make your own decision now. I went in to the gymnasium and I sat on the floor with my feet up like this and I watched the kids square dance every now and then. And as they were laughing and locking their arms and jumping around, I was thinking to myself, man, you go ahead and laugh now, man. You're going to pay for this. I had it in my mind. I had the poem in my mind. Swing your partner round and round. Judgment's coming and you're going down. I was 12. When I was 12 years old, we finished the Little League season. At the end of the season, the coach said, I'll take everyone who wants to go to a movie. I had another decision to make. Wesleyans did not profane the Sabbath. They did not fly in the face of God, and they did not go to movies. This was the Holy Trilogy. (laughs) 
I called my father, said, what shall I do? He said, son, you're 12 years old now. You have a decision to make. I said, fine, I'm going. And all the way to the movie theater, I sat and the words of my junior high teacher was ringing in my head the whole movie long. What if Jesus comes back while you're in a theater, he said. I can hear it today. Would he take you and leave the person next to you? I thought, that's a good question. Because you see, on the outside, we were both doing the same thing. And so I sat, true story, I sat in fear and trembling while I watched my first movie. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) The problem is, like some of you whose parents have said, I'll pay for college if you go to a Christian college, who said, I'll go to Indiana Wesleyan because, well, we live in the area and it's the closest college to us. I'm talking about people who say, I grew up in the Christian home, but I'm primarily here for the spirit sports events. These are people who learned how to fake the exterior life and maybe even convince ourselves from time to time that we really do want this. Why, when the music is playing and the mood is just right, we tell ourselves, yeah, I want that. But when we are left to ourselves, as Luther said, and the punishment and the reward is taken away, I found in my life that when I left my home and I came down here, I went full circle and began doing recklessly the very things my parents forbade. And I called it backsliding. It's not backsliding. I was only acting out with my bodies the things I had done before only in my mind. And so the question for the person who sits in chair four is the question of why is it? You don't have to repent now. Remarkably, the Apostle Paul, when he talks to heathens, Acts 17 is the perfect example of this, he talks to a bunch of Greek philosophers on Mars Hill, and ironically, the thing he does not tell them to do is repent. He has the heathens in his crosshairs, and he does not say, you need to repent. He says, even though God commands that all people everywhere should repent, which is a funny way to put it when you've got them right there. And the reason is because those of you that are trapped in chair number four, and you really wish I'd stop talking right now. And so I won't tell you anything but this. You don't have to repent right now. But you do need to ask yourself the question, why is it that you can't even want the good life? I sat with a woman 40, uh, just about two years ago, dying in the hospital. She had less than two days to live and she knew it. She says, Pastor Steve, I have a confession to make. She's not a believer now. She says, I have a confession to make. I said, what is that? She said, when I was younger, I was pregnant. This was 45 years ago. She said, I was pregnant and I did not want the baby. And so I went to the doctor. They didn't have anything to give me. But the doctor said, I can give you something that will probably make you bleed and maybe you can kill the baby. She said, I went home and I took the pills and bleed I did. I used other apparatus in order to kill the child. And he lived. 
I have a confession to make. I said, to whom? She said, the 45-year-old child is just down the hall off on the right. He's my son. He wants to come back and see me. I said, why do you want to tell him this? Watch this. Because I don't want to die with this on my conscience. In other words, she desires to confess today for the same reason she desired to abort him 45 years ago. It was in her best interest to do so. She said, the evil is so black. I said, don't you feel a tinge of guilt at all? She said, not really. Should I pray? I said, no, no. You've nothing to say. Now watch the question for those of you stuck in chair four. But she says, Pastor Steve, how do I make myself feel guilty about something I do not feel guilty for? You do not repent because the moment you repent, you've already left chair four. So those of you that do not have the good life and do not desire it, the question you must leave here asking yourself is this, why is it that you can't even want to do the things you despise others for doing? Those of you that are stuck in chair three must ask yourself Luther's question. If you take away heaven and you take away hell and suddenly both of the incentives are gone, You are left for yourself 24 hours to do anything that you desire to do. You can sin or live righteously with complete impunity. God will not even remember it when you get to heaven. If there is a heaven, what do you do? What do you do? What things have you been wishing you could do that your environment, your studentship at Indiana Wesleyan will not allow you to do? You're in chair number three. These last two are very quick. Notice the jump between this one and this one. Chair number two describes a person who does want the good life, but he does not have it. This is a guy who's been changed on the inside. His true desire has been given to him. And now he truly desires to have for himself the life that he used to despise. But there are still rough edges around him that he cannot change. I'm thinking of the guy in the youth group of a friend of mine who said he was in a youth group. The guy just got saved. And he said to him, does somebody want to pray? They all sat there silent for a while and no one said anything. And does somebody want to pray? Finally, the young convert said, what the hell, I'll pray. While the rest of them are... (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, and I don't leave her thinking we condone that, we don't. Because you see, if you leave here and you really want to say those kinds of things and appear innocent, you're really guilty. But give any preacher his choice and he'll take a room full of those people because the work has already been done. What we find in the church so much is we're trying to disciple the dead, people whose conversion has never happened. Jimmy Johnson put it like this. He said most of the people that come to be sanctified need to be saved. And what he means is there's never been a genuine conversion in that inward mechanism on their part. It's not truly changed over. Once that has happened, then the discipleship process 
is normal, natural. It, God pulls it out of us. Listen to me, guys, especially. Nobody needs to tell a man how to make love to a woman. He knows that by instinct. We don't need lessons. We need two things, passion and opportunity. And the same thing is true with Christians. Nobody needs to tell a true Christian how to love his Jesus. He needs passion, and he got that at conversion. All he needs now is opportunity. And this explains to me why, for the first time, I see people who are missing discipleship meetings, not reading scripture, missing church, not taking part. They're missing opportunity after opportunity because the passion has not truly been given to them. Finally, there is this last guy. He wants the good life, and he has the good life. Paul says, what's the matter with me? The good that I want to do, I cannot do. Whenever I go to do good, evil's right there with me. Give the guy a break. At least he wanted it. That puts him ahead of 90% of the church. But this guy over here is a guy who in Romans chapter 8 has put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now he does by nature things required by the law. He keeps the law even when there is no law to keep. And you know what the truest proof that you and I have the good life. Here's the irony of it. The truest evidence that a man has the good life is not that he separates himself from the world, so he is all alone, but that he comes down and he becomes friends, close, with the person who is his opposite. Given my druthers, I'd rather be with sinners than half saints. Because at least the two of us agree. I have recklessly thrown myself into what I believe. And they have recklessly thrown themselves into what they believe. At least we're consistent. The people that don't make sense are the guys in the middle who only half believe what they say they believe. And so, holiness is not being separated from everybody. Holiness is loving people least like you. And when you do this, the other people in the church, it's odd. But when... when Good Christians love bad sinners. Half Christians get mad and end up like the people they despise. This morning, I just want to end by giving one instruction to those of you that are stuck somewhere down here, not able yet to truly desire the things that you admire in life. I was in Southern Wesleyan about a year and a half ago. Afterwards, after speaking at night, one of the students came up and he said, I'm not going to be there tomorrow morning, Steve, but I, I, I heard what you were saying about commitment. And he says, I, I'm, I'm not there yet. I, I play ball. Uh, he said, you know, I want that stuff. I really do. But he said, I, uh, well, you know, I... I like to party and 
And you know, I like women. Uh, the, 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 that's good. I thought it beats the alternative. What, what, what is wrong? He said, well, he said, I, I'm not quite able to make that jump into truly wanting the good life. What do I do when I cannot want the thing I admire? I said, I don't know what to tell you except for this. Two things. When you go home tonight, physically get on your knees. Not in your mind. You physically get on your knees. Your soul will do what your body dictates to a certain extent. And on your knees, you need to pray for one thing. And David hit it in Psalm 51. Lord, give me an undivided heart. Pray for an undivided heart. Most of the books you never finish, the classes you never end, the term papers you didn't quite finish, most of the projects you began and didn't finish, most of the New Year's resolutions you broke, all stem from a divided heart. You want one thing, but then later, later, you want something else. And so when you are on your knees, you pray for one thing. God, give me an undivided heart. And you pray as long as you can pray that. And when you're through and you can't pray it anymore, you get up, turn off the lights, and go to bed. And tomorrow night, you get on your knees again. And you pray the same thing. Dear God, give me an undivided heart. And on the day when that prayer gets boring, you ask yourself, dear God, what's wrong with me? I can't even want the things I should have. In our brokenness, Christ can make us holy. It is in loving response to him who loved me first that he gives me the good life. Take away our bent to sinning. Alpha and Omega B. End of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. Bow our heads. Father, this morning I pray for the students that are here. Somewhere I pray in this spectrum we have found ourselves. If we are in this one place, Lord, where we cannot desire the things that you desire for us, give us the courage, give us the audacity to ask why. If we are, O oh Lord, stuck in a routine, in a veneer, a cosmetic and plastic righteousness, and left to ourselves, we would not continue. Oh dear God, give us the transparency to ask why. Put your desire inside of us. Give us an undivided heart. Sometime today, tomorrow, the next month or two, pull each student aside and give us an undivided heart. For those of us, Lord, that find and declare ourselves already holy, if we do not love sinners as Christ loved the thieves, give us an undivided heart. Not for our sake, but for yours, in whose image we were made. In the name of Jesus. Amen.
Steve Deneff will be at College Wesleyan Church uh, Sanctuary tomorrow at 11 o'clock. Please stand. Father, may the fullness of this truth be realized in every person's life that is in this auditorium as the Holy Spirit follows us and draws us to live and desire the good life. You're dismissed.